in May of 2016, an Israeli man named David Shushan launched a novel legal action. He filed a petition in an Israeli court seeking a restraining order against God. Not making this up. He filed a petition seeking a restraining order against God. He explained to the judge that God had been treating him harshly and not nicely. <clears throat> Several times, apparently, Shushan had called the police on God. And one of those times, the responding officer sarcastically suggested to Shushan that maybe he should seek a restraining order against God and apparently missing the sarcasm, Shushan decided that sounded like a good idea. In any event, the judge, Hassan Kanan, decided that he did not have jurisdiction over God and dismissed the petition, suggesting instead that Shushan should seek help from another source like maybe the local mental health clinic. But say what you will about David Shushan, it takes a lot of chutzpah to sue God. Imagine, I mean, just suppose that there was some heavenly tribunal where we could seek restraining orders against God. When in your life would you have done so? How many times in your life would you have done so? I ask because that's what we're going to talk about today. Those times in our life when what God is doing, or if not doing and causing, at least not stopping, makes no sense. And we are tempted to say, move over, God. I'm taking charge. I'm taking the wheel. We're going to do this my way. Let's start with a prayer. God, we live in such a confusing reality. So many times, what we wish you would do, you won't. Or what we wish you wouldn't allow, you do. As people of faith, in times like that, how should we respond? Bring the scripture laid before us today alive so that we can learn from your holy word the true source of our wisdom for living. This we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, last week, we talked at a high level about the narrative arc of the life of Mary, the mother of Jesus, walking through six interconnected stories in her life so that by seeing the pattern of those stories, from that we could draw an important lesson. We saw how critical it was that, that Mary was willing to ponder uncomfortable, 
ideas and experiences because it was her ability to step back, sit with something, mull it over that ultimately allowed her to live into the fullness of what God meant for her. Now today, we're stepping out of that narrative arc and down into one of those particular six stories to go deep into that particular story to see what else we might learn from it. You heard the story read by Andrea just a few minutes ago from Mark's Gospel, the third chapter. The back story to what you just heard is that months before this, Jesus had launched his public ministry. And he was creating an enormous sensation. Everybody was wondering, people were talking, is it possible that this is the one that we've long been waiting for? Is it possible this is the Messiah? And there was a robust debate around that. Because you see, on the one hand, by the time we get to Mark chapter 3, Jesus has already worked incredible miracles of healing. At this point, Jesus had already healed a man whose body was consumed with leprosy. Jesus had already healed Simon Peter's mother of a deadly fever. And in his most eye-popping miracle so far, Jesus had raised up a paralyzed man so that he could walk again. As people were witnessing these mighty miracles, they could not help but wonder, could this be the long-awaited Messiah? In fact, Mark chapter 2 verse 12 tells us, everybody was saying, we've never seen anything like this before. On the other hand, Jesus was saying, what shall we say? Jesus was saying some crazy sounding things. And lots of things that were also inconsistent with the then standard view of who the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. For starters, Jesus had already by Mark chapter 3 claimed that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Now wait a minute. God is Lord of the Sabbath. So what are you trying to tell us, Jesus? That you're God? I mean, that's, that's crazy talk. Jesus already by Mark chapter 3 had claimed that he had the power to forgive sins. That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. You think you're God? Crazy talk. Not just that. But Jesus was saying all these things inconsistent with the then current expectations for the Messiah because Jesus' fellow Israelites were expecting the Messiah to be a great political and military leader who was going to oust the Romans from their occupation of Israel and usher in an unparalleled era of peace and prosperity for Israel. But Jesus was, as we saw last week, saying things like, blessed are the peacemakers, they shall be called the children of God. Jesus, the Messiah, okay, maybe on the back end you're supposed to be a peacemaker, but first you've got to take up arms and get these Romans out of here. Liberate us. 
like the prophets were expecting. Jesus was saying to his followers things like, don't take up the sword. But, hey, how are you going to get the Romans out of here if you don't allow your followers to take up arms? Jesus was saying things to his followers like, if my kingdom were of this world, I would ask you to fight for me. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. <laughs> okay, Jesus, if you're not here to establish an earthly Israelite kingdom, where's your kingdom going to be? On the moon? On Mars? Crazy. Jesus, in perhaps the craziest thing of all, was telling his followers that if a Roman soldier compels you to carry his gear, his military gear, one mile, you should volunteer to carry it a second mile. The Messiah was not expected to be an appeaser of the enemies of Israel. So on the one hand, Jesus is working these incredible miracles. He must be the Messiah. On the other hand, Jesus was saying things that just, just is not what people were expecting of the Messiah. So there was this robust debate about is he or isn't he? The one that we've been waiting for for all these years. And it was in the midst of this robust debate that Jesus decided to pay a visit back to his hometown, Nazareth. As you heard read, as, as soon as Jesus entered the village of Nazareth, he was mobbed by people, locals who were excited that this hometown boy was making a big name for himself. Locals who heard, had been hearing all this scuttlebutt about Jesus and wanted to take the measure of the man now for themselves and see what this fuss was all about. Mind you, they, like other people living in Galilee, had already been warned by religious leaders sent to them from Jerusalem. They'd been warned about this Jesus. Mark 3, 22 says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem to Galilee in the region of Nazareth said of Jesus, he has Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, Beelzebul, he casts out demons. In other words, they were saying, he's demon-possessed. What we today would call crazy. And so many of people, even in Jesus' hometown, were going around and saying, this Jesus has gone out of his mind. And that's when the story takes a strange twist. Jesus' family is hearing all of this. Mark 3.21, when Jesus' family heard it, all of the scuttlebutt, all the great things Jesus was doing, but all of the crazy things he was saying, all of the things inconsistent with what the Messiah was supposed to do. When Jesus' family heard it, they went out to restrain him. For people were saying he's gone out of his mind. But by the time they arrive, on the scene, Jesus is in this big house that is crammed full of people, shoulder to shoulder, packed like sardines, listening to what Jesus was preaching and teaching so that it wasn't feasible for his family to make their way inside and have a meaningful conversation with him in the house. So instead, we're told, verse 31, then his mother and his brothers came 
And standing outside the house, they sent in to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around Jesus. And they said to Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are outside asking for you. You see what's happening here, right? Mary was leading a delegation from her family to have an intervention with Jesus. Mary was coming to restrain her son. The Greek word that is translated as restrain here means to use strength to seize or retain. Mary, with the assistance of Jesus' brothers and sisters, had come to lay hold on Jesus, take him home, sit him down, and talk some sense into his head. Son, if you keep saying things that offend the religious leaders, they'll never rally around you. When you say things like, I'm Lord of the Sabbath and I have the power to forgive sins, I mean, that's, that's like scratching the chalkboard to these religious leaders. You've got to tone it down. And if you keep saying things to the masses of people that are inconsistent with what they expect the Messiah to be, if you keep telling them, blessed are the peacemakers and, and don't take up your sword and my kingdom is not of this world, nobody's going to follow you. Everybody's going to turn against you. If you keep this up, everything will fail. It has to stop. Oh, wait a minute. Mary, Mary, hold it. You knew who Jesus was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. At least you should have. Because remember, as we saw last week, on the eighth day after Jesus' birth, when Mary and Joseph took their baby to the temple to dedicate him to God, the, the prophet Simeon had stopped them and said to Mary, Quote, many in Israel will oppose your son. So Mary knew, or should have, that Jesus was going to encounter all this opposition. This was part of the plan, not contrary to the plan. Simeon had also warned Mary that the path her son was going to take was going to create a lot of suffering for him and therefore for her, his mother. Not just that, but before Jesus was ever born, an angel had told Mary exactly who her son, Jesus, was going to be. The angel said, He will be called the Son of God. She was already told that her son was divinity, the very Son of God, and that his kingdom would never end. That the kingdom that he was sent to establish was not some mere temporary earthly kingdom, but rather a spiritual kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, a spiritual movement to which there will be no end, an eternal spiritual kingdom. Mary had already been told all of these things, but apparently she thought she knew better. Apparently, like, like 
David Shushan, the guy I mentioned at the, in the opening story, Mary had the chutzpah to think that she was going to restrain God. Because remember, Jesus said, if you've seen, the, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. So that by seeking to restrain Jesus, Mary was literally trying to restrain God. And we could clutch our pearls and say, oh, Mary, I never, what do you think? I would never do something like that, Mary. But the truth, the gospel truth is, from time to time in our life, every single one of us is Mary in Mark chapter 3. From time to time in our life, every single one of us is experiencing something that makes no sense. And our attitude is, God, move over. I'm taking the wheel. I've got it from here. Just let me handle this. It happens all the time in our lives. Again and again and again, we do it. Because we need to understand and we, we think we understand. But the truth is, lots of things happen in life that just make no sense. I heard a, a funny joke the other day. It goes like this, and, and this is kind of a sophisticated joke, so track with me, all right? It goes like this. I was out walking the other day along the roadway at 40 miles per, per hour when I lost one of my pedals. So, how many frogs do I have in the blender? None because milk has no bones. <laughs> oh, you got it, didn't you? You, you got it. You didn't get it, did you? Okay, I'm going to do it one more time. Now pay attention, all right? You'll get it this time. All right, I was walking down the road the other day, 40 miles per hour, when I lost one of my pedals. So how many frogs do I have in the blender? None because milk has no bones. You still, you still don't get it. You don't get it because you're not supposed to. It's a deliberately nonsensical joke, a word salad, and the humor in the joke is you tell some people ahead of time when I tell this stupid joke, laugh like it's the funniest thing you've ever heard, and then let's watch everybody else's face. <laughs> and what you were feeling just a moment ago, this makes no sense, you're going to feel that dozens of times as you move through life. This makes no sense, God. My dad is 91 years old, as I've told some of you before. He is, his sight is gone, and not completely, but he can't drive anymore. He lives in a house in the countryside up near Sheridan and surrounded by cornfields. And now that he can't drive, it's like he's a prisoner in his own home. 
I drive up there 45 minutes from my house as often as I can to get him out and get him about. But otherwise, he's imprisoned in his house. So finally, this last summer, he agreed that he would move in. We would build a house together, an intergenerational house in Westfield. We signed the contract on the house in August. It was supposed to start in September. But come the end of September, the builder told us that it would be delayed until October. Come the end of October, the builder said it would be delayed until the end of November, at the end of November until the end of December. And it still hasn't started because apparently there's a water sourcing issue in Westfield that's keeping them from issuing these permits. And I'm thinking to myself, God, six months of delay for a 91-year-old who's in prison in his house. That's torture. It's awful. God, why won't you fix this? It makes no sense. When I was in college, studying to be an independent fundamentalist, Baptist preacher, it was then that I realized I'm gay. And also realized that there's not much market for independent fundamentalist Baptist preachers who happen to be gay. <laughs> God, why would you call me to something and yet create me in a way that I cannot be that? It makes no sense. Randy Heslop was 19 years old. Had a good life. Was part of our youth group. Happy-go-lucky. Had everything going for him. He gets up one morning and he kills himself. He never showed any signs of depression or trauma. To this day, nobody knows why he did it. Nineteen. Gone. It makes no sense. Many of you know Byron Williams. Eighty-four years old, thirty-plus years part of our congregation. On Christmas Day, I was able to visit Byron at a rehab center. He's had lots of health problems lately. In and out of the hospital, he's in rehab now. At the rehab center, they've told him that he's not going to be able to go home again. He doesn't even qualify for assisted living. He needs a nursing home. As we talked about this, at the end of our conversation, I said, Byron, what do you want me to pray with you for? What shall we pray about? And he said, pray that I will understand. I said, tell me more about what you mean by that. He said, I, I just want to understand why this hap is happening to me. Why does it have to be this way? And there it is. We human beings, we need to know. We want to be able to understand. It goes all the way back to the first story in the Bible where in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are told you can eat the fruit of any tree in the garden except this one tree in the middle of the garden called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat of that fruit. But that made no sense to Adam and Eve. Why could they eat of all the fruit of the garden but not the fruit of this one tree, especially when to look at it, it looked like a perfectly good fruit, maybe the best fruit in the garden. 
And why wouldn't God want to allow them to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Because once they ate of that tree, they then would know what God knows and everything would now make sense. So it made no sense that God told them not to eat of that tree. But because it made no sense, they decided to take matters into their own hand and do it anyway. And it was a complete disaster. It was their greatest mistake. Just like Mark chapter 3 was Mary's greatest mistake. And just like many of us, myself included, will from time to time repeat that same great mistake. Why is it so dangerous to head down that role of saying, I'm seizing control. If it doesn't make sense to me, I'll do it my way. Why is that so dangerous? Just ask Mary. Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters arrived outside the home where Jesus was teaching people. They stood outside and they sent in a message to him to come out and talk to them. And as you heard in the passage, Jesus refused. His mother was standing outside saying, I want a word with you. And he said, no. He probably knew what was coming. This had probably been in the wind a long time. So Jesus said no, but he didn't just say no. He went on to say the following. Mark 3.33, Jesus replied when he heard this message, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him who were hanging on his every word, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. So he gets a message saying, your mother, brother, and sisters are outside. They want a word with you. Your family's outside, Jesus. They want a word with you. And he says, in effect, what family? You're my family now. If my family of origin won't stand with me, then at least my family of choice will. Jesus' relationship with his mother, brothers, and sisters had reached this breaking point. They'd come to restrain him. To, and if they didn't understand, and if they were going to try to stop him, Jesus had no choice if he was going to follow God's call in his life but to move forward without them. Which was and is so sad because, I mean, think of what Mary was now going to miss. As of Mark chapter 3, Mary drops out of the Jesus story and is not heard from again in the Bible until the very end at the crucifixion when she found her way back and got back on track. We'll talk about that next week and the next. But 
apparently, as the Gospels tell the story, there's this huge gap of months, if not years, between Mark chapter 3 and when Mary re-enters Jesus' life. You see, her insistence that he not do what he felt God calling him to do, Jesus had to move on without her. And think of what Mary missed because of that. I mean, Jesus was doing some of the most amazing things we've seen ever in the history of the world, and she could have been right there. She could have been his biggest supporter. She could have been his most amazing disciple and closest advisor and confidant. She could have been there and have seen with her own eyes when Jesus raised a dead little girl up and gave her back to her family. Mary could have been there when Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And she could have been an eyewitness to her son walking on the water. And she could have sat down and wrote for us the gospel according to Mary. So that we wouldn't just have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But we'd have a fifth gospel, the gospel according to Mary, filled with penetrating insights like only a mother could offer on her son. Telling us not just about her perspective on what Jesus did in his public ministry, but filling in that gap between when Jesus is 12 years old and he launches his public ministry where we know nothing about the life of Jesus and how he got from there to his public ministry. She could have told us all of that. It would have been most of our, our most beloved gospel, the gospel according to Mary. You've heard people talk about the lost gospel. That's the real lost gospel. She could have been his most amazing disciple. If only she hadn't insisted that I can't go along with what I don't understand. And there's a powerful lesson in that for each one of us. The lesson being, when we seek to restrain God, when we refuse to cooperate, when we think we know better and insist on our own way, God has no choice but to move on without us. If I won't do what God is calling me to do, God will have to find somebody else to do it instead. And I get left out. Two strangers were sitting on an airplane shortly after takeoff. These two strangers, one a, a brilliant philosopher, the other a rough-hewn cowboy. The cowboy, after takeoff, pulls his Bible out and starts to read it. The philosopher leans over and says to him, you know, flights go a lot faster when people make conversation. I know we don't know each other, but what do you say we get acquainted and have a conversation? Okay, the cowboy says, what are we going to talk about? Well, the philosopher says, I, I see that you've got your Bible there, so let's have a religious conversation. I want to ask you a religious question. All right, the cowboy said, what is it? The philosopher says, how is it that God can exist when there is so much hunger, pain, famine, violence, hate, and war in the world? 
The cowboy said, well, that's a good question. And I'll tell you what I think about that question. But first, the cowboy said, let me ask you a question, okay? The philosopher said, what's your question? The cowboy said, well, over time, I've become a very avid hunter, and that means I've had to become an expert in scat. Do you know what scat is? The cowboy, or the philosopher says, no, what, what's scat? The cowboy says, scat is just a fancy word for animal poop. Because when you're hunting, you have to be able to track animals by their droppings. So, here's my question for you, the cowboy says. A deer, a horse, and a cow all eat the same thing, grass. But they then produce very different kinds of droppings. Deer droppings are small little pellets. Cow droppings are flat, big pies. And horse droppings are these well-formed, large clumps. All eat the same thing, but produce different scat. How is that possible? Why is that? The philosopher says, I don't know. The cowboy says, that's my point. He says, how dare you question God when it's clear you don't know scat? <laughs> or he may have used that other S word, but you, you, get, <laughs> you get the point, right? The truth is, we don't know scat. What I mean by that is, what I mean by that is not that we shouldn't ask the hard questions. We should. That is good. But we should do so with a sense of humility and perspective. Never forgetting that if God is infinite and God created the reality we live in, an infinite reality, but we are finite, then by definition, there will be a lot of things that we finite creatures cannot figure out in God's infinite reality. It just stands to reason. Like the brilliant mathematician Blaise Pascal once said, the last step of human logic is the denial of itself. Because, he said, the last step of human logic is the recognition that there are an infinite number of things that are beyond it. It's kind of like you've, you've heard people say before, smart people know what they know, but really smart people know what they don't know. That's the point. Yes, we should ask the great questions of faith, but we should never fall into the illusion that we're supposed to be able to figure it all out. If we figured it all out, we're kidding ourselves because God has created an infinite reality. Here's a riddle, a riddle for you. See if you can figure out the answer to this riddle. The rapper 50 Cent was hungry. So what did he do? 58. By the way, that wasn't a fake joke. You can laugh at that one. <laughs> Here's another riddle for you. What do you call a wreath 
of $20 bills. A wreath of Franklin's. Benjamin Franklin on the $20 bill, a wreath of Franklin's. One, one more for good measure. You're going to get one of these right. Why should you never fall in love with a tennis player? Because to them, love is nothing. Three very simple human riddles that you can't figure out. But you think you're going to figure out God and the reality God created? That's the point. There are an infinite number of things that are beyond us. So, when we find ourselves in one of those places in life that makes no sense, God, why are you doing this? Or if you're not causing it, why are you allowing it to happen? What should we do as people of faith? What is the ultimate lesson we're supposed to learn from this story about Mary in Mark chapter 3? I would sum it up this way. Stop trying to control everything. Stop trying to understand everything. And just meet life where it is. Stop fighting the waves and start riding them. Stop trying to swim against the waves and start surfing them. Find your purpose in whatever life serves up. Because our job is not to control life but to harmonize with it. Do you see what I'm saying? The Bible puts it this way. We walk by faith, not by sight. I do not have to understand why something is happening to me in order to make the most of it. If something is happening to me, God's will is that I make the most of it. It doesn't matter whether God caused it or whether God simply allowed it because in a zone of free will that God has created for us so that we can be real, God often restrains from intervening so as to not take our liberty and freedom away. And so there are going to be a lot of things that God doesn't want to happen that happen to us. But whether God caused it or just allowed it, whatever happens, God's will is that you make the most of it. We often talk about finding God's will as if it's something we've got to discover that's hidden somewhere. No, we don't find God's will. God's will finds us. Whatever life brings us, God's will is that we make the most of it. The David uh, Haidu is a well-known columnist, a professor of journalism at Columbia University, and he was for 12 years the chief music critic and editor of the New Republic magazine. Loved music. So once David Haidu uh, was in a basement club in New York City, a small club, to hear a little-known jazz combo play. But it, it turns out that Wynton Marsalis was there with the combo that night to play with him. Now, Wynton Marsalis is one of the greatest jazz musicians of our era and one of the greatest trumpeters of all time. But on this particular night, 
there he is in this little basement club in New York City. And David Haidu, a lover of music, is there with a ringside seat on the greatness of Wynton Marcellus along with about 30, 40, 50 other people. And so everybody's excited. Wynton Marsalis is in the house and he's playing with the combo. And after the combo plays a couple songs, there comes a point where Marsalis steps to the front of the platform to play a solo on his own. He chooses to play a, a classic 1930s song, I Don't Stand a Ghost of a Chance with You. Haidu says, as, as Marsalis began to play, he says, with the notes that Marsalis was playing, it's like, each note was weeping in despair. You could feel the, the pain of the music in each note that Marsalis was playing. The audience was completely engrossed. And then Marsalis comes to the final phrase of that song. And with that final phrase, he, he held each note with long pauses in between for emphasis. I don't stand a ghost of a chance. And he was ready to hit those last two finale notes with you when suddenly somebody's stupid cell phone jingle starts ranking. Interrupting everything. Some people groan audibly, others laugh audibly, surprised by this inappropriate interruption. The guy whose cell phone went off grabs his phone and embarrassed, races out into the hallway to try to silence it. But it's too late. The spell has been broken. The mood has been crushed. In fact, David Haidu says, on my notepad in front of me, I wrote the words, magic ruined but not so fast. Apparently unperturbed by this interruption, Marsalis waited for a short period for people to regather themselves. And then Haidu says, Marsalis played the cell phone jingle note for note. <laughs> and then he started riffing on the jingle playing it with different accents, and then playing it in different keys. And then he started weaving the melody of the ringtone into the melody of I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you, <laughs> making his way all the way back to that final phrase and coming to those two as yet unplayed notes, I don't stand a ghost of a chance with you. And the audience exploded in applause, realizing that they had just witnessed a musical miracle. They had just witnessed a masterpiece of improvisation. They realized that it was far better that the interruption occurred because they had now had a far more meaningful experience than if it had not. God wants us to be like Wynton Marsalis. We wish life was a piece of classical music. Every note written out, 
a clear plan. Instead, life is a lot more like jazz. Improvisation is required. The unexpected happens, and you have to interact with what's happening around you. Our job in life is not to control it, but to harmonize with it. When life serves you lemons, make lemonade. Bloom where you're planted. We don't find life. Life finds us. We don't find God's will. God's will finds us. Let me close with this. Uh, in his book, Unseen, or in his book, Things Unseen, Mark Buchanan tells the story of Rick Hansen. When Rick Hansen was 15 years old, he was riding in the back of a pickup truck with a friend. When the driver of the truck lost control, the truck crashed, and Hansen was thrown from the bed of the truck out into the street and landed with such force, he suffered a severe spinal cord injury and became a paraplegic. A 15-year-old boy, a budding athlete, who now suddenly is a paraplegic. It makes no sense. This was a pivotal moment in Rick Hansen's life. He had a choice. Resist, resent, and fall into despair, or make the most of what had happened. He chose the latter option. Went through grueling rehab. Reinvolved himself in athletics, now wheelchair athletics. So that by the time Rick Hansen was in college, he played on a Canadian national championship basketball team, wheelchair basketball team, and a Canadian national wheelchair volleyball team. From there, he went on to become an internationally renowned wheelchair marathoner, winning over 18 international marathon competitions. Then one day, he had a brilliant idea. He heard about a celebrity who was attempting to run across Canada to raise awareness for a worthy cause and to raise funds for that cause. And it occurred to Hansen, I could do that to raise awareness for spinal cord injury and funds for spinal cord injury. Except it occurred to Hansen, I'm not just going to wheel across Canada. I'm going to wheel all the way around the globe. Can you imagine? He began his journey to great fanfare in 1985. Mark Buchanan describes what happened next. It was a grueling trip. There are photos of Rick Hansen in all kinds of weather, burning heat, slashing rain, Swirling blizzards, howling wind, and in all kinds of terrain, desert wastelands, dense forests, patchwork farmlands, craggy mountains. See him as he strains his back, his neck fluted with stretched cords, his arms taut with aching muscles, his body a skine of bulging veins, and his fists like stones as he climbs impossibly steep terrain like the Great Wall of China where you see him in the photo. Mile upon tiresome mile, hands thick with calluses, thighs bruised, hands 
or excuse me, back blistered. It took him two long years. But on May 23rd, 1987, Rick Hansen finished his circle of the globe. As he was approaching again his hometown of Vancouver, still miles away, people gathered to welcome him. As he got nearer, the crowd thickened along both sides of the highway, hundreds of people, then thousands, then thousands upon thousands. They roared, clapped, cheered, wept. They threw flowers as he approached BC Place Stadium. Rick could hear the din of the roar of the voices from inside the stadium, but he could not have been prepared for what came next because as he swooped through the lower gate of the stadium and glided out onto the field, 60,000 people who had packed the stadium went berserk. National and international dignitaries, rock stars and movie stars, television crews, family, friends, leaping, dancing, blowing horns, exploding with applause, wild, raucous, hypnotic, a deafening roar. And every time it seemed about to taper off, a fresh wind caught it and carried it higher, louder, brighter, fuller. Hansen was surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And in the process, he raised enormous awareness for spinal cord injuries and an enormous amount of funds for spinal cord research so that he ended up accomplishing more as a paraplegic than he probably would have had he never suffered that severe injury because when life served him lemons, he decided to make lemonade. He wasn't going to waste his time or energy trying to figure out why he was going to bloom where he was planted. He was going to take the discordant notes of life and make beautiful music out of it. How about us? As we are approaching a new year, what unwanted circumstance has intruded on your life and what would it look like for you to resolve to make the most of it? Maybe your New Year's resolution needs to be, I am going to make the most of my unwanted circumstance. Instead of fighting the waves, ride them. Our job is not to control life, but to harmonize with it. Do that and you will find your deepest meaning. You will find God's will for your life. Reverend Dr. Richard Halverson, my former pastor when I lived in Washington, D.C., who was also then the chaplain of the United States Senate, he once put it this way, wherever you go, God is sending you. Wherever you are, God has put you there. God has a purpose in your being right where you are. Christ indwells you by the power of his spirit and wants to do something in and through you. Believe this and go in his grace, his love, and his power. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.